get into a pretty tricky topic for the next two weeks, a couple weeks. Part of Molly's testimony is uh, related to her frustration with church. I remember when we first kind of got together and she was talking about that. We met in church, but she got really frustrated with church when she was young because a Sunday school teacher made the point of telling the whole group that if you commit suicide, you go to hell. Um, That's part of her life and part of something she grew up in was a suicide situation. So for her, that was pretty stinking offensive and ran her out of church for a pretty good while. And um, I get reminded of that question a pretty good bit, honestly, and I'm not here to just talk about suicide. But I get reminded of that question. There was a guy in prison this week at Catoosa County that uh, um, just made kind of a dumb mistake. He's not in there on some huge crime, not that that would matter, but he's a believer and he was talking through his faith pretty good, but he said kind of the same thing, that he was suicidal at one point over depression, drug-related depression, and um, that the only thing that stopped him from doing it was the thought that if he committed suicide, he was going to go to hell, and he just wasn't sure about that. So, is there an unpardonable sin? Some say suicide is one. Is there an unpardonable sin? The answer to that is yes. One. One unpardonable sin. That's rejecting Christ. Denying his identity. That's really what it comes down to. Denying his identity. That's that's it. That's the only one period in Scripture. And so as we go on and jump and go to Matthew 12, as we go on in here, a couple things to note that are pretty cool is these guys, in, in, the, in their rejection of Jesus... He's fulfilling scripture, and in their rejection of Jesus, they're fulfilling scripture. Both ways. It's pretty wild. We already talked about chapter 12. We already talked about the first few verses weeks ago. You can go back and listen to the podcast. We talked about rest, um, I don't know, fourth or fifth week in there, and so I jumped ahead to do it. So I'm not going to go into great detail, but we'll skim back over it just to remind you. But if you want to go back into detail on it, you can go back and listen to that one. But verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful for them to do on the Sabbath. Again, I know I'm going to cover this quick, but we've talked about it, okay? First of all, Jesus' disciples were not breaking the Sabbath uh, or any other of the 613 Old Testament or, or laws of Moses or Torah They were not breaking the Sabbath. They weren't breaking any of those 613 laws. However, they were breaking four of the 1,500 Mishnah laws. So the laws that these Pharisees and religious leaders had put in place, they were breaking four of those. That was reaping, sowing, threshing, and winnowing. They were breaking all of them. Snapping it off the stalk, that was reaping, according to the Pharisees, okay? Rubbing it between your fingers to separate the chaff was threshing it according to the Pharisees, or the Mishnah laws, blowing the chaff out of your hands, blowing off the dust out of your hands so you had the little kernel that was winnowing. And then when you swallowed it, no joke, that was storing it. So the, these were 
Mishnah laws and what the Pharisees had done, some say it was innocent initially, and it may have been, is they came and they built laws around the laws because their idea was if we've been, if we messed up and we've been exiled to Babylon, we can't allow the people to do that again. So the best thing we can do is don't even get close to the edge. So they started backing up. And if, if the law said this, let's, let's take them a step away from that and say this. So they don't even get close to the law. And then if that law is that, you know, that's one step closer, let's make them two steps back. So they just keep adding these laws to back people up away from the law in order to keep them hopefully safe from exile. But either way, they're judging Jesus and his disciples based on their word, not God's word. Okay? Fruchtenbaum records, he says this, If someone asked such a rabbi if it is wrong to walk on the grass on the Sabbath day, he would answer, no, it's permissible to walk on the grass on the Sabbath day. However, there is a problem. What looks only like a grassy field might have one wild stalk of wheat growing in it. A person walking through the field of grass might inadvertently step on that one wild stalk of wheat and separate the wheat from its stalk. Thus, he would become guilty of reaping on the Sabbath day. Furthermore, if his foot came down and actually twisted a little bit and the wheat twisted the wheat a little bit, just enough to separate the wheat from the chaff, he would be guilty of threshing on the Sabbath day. If he continued to walk and the outer hem of his garment might have caught uh, the breeze and caught some of the chaff, then he would be guilty of winnowing on the Sabbath day. Finally, once the per- person had gone, a bird or a rodent might see the exposed piece of wheat and swallow it, causing him to be guilty of storing wheat on the Sabbath day. So therefore, it's permissible to walk through the grass, but they would never dare do it. You know what I mean? That's kind of the way that it, it got twisted. And in some ways, it's an exaggeration, and in some ways, it's not. There are things in Israel today, we've talked about this before, if you go, you can see elevators that have Sabbath buttons, so you don't hit too many buttons. There's all There's all kinds of... Things and rules that are still in place and just like anything else, some areas are loose and some areas are strict. And But we do this same thing in the church. You know, how many churches you know that what you dress like on Sunday morning is a huge deal? You don't come in this church dressed like that. You know, and I get the etiquette and I get all of that, but that's really the same thing. You know, music. This is the kind of music that must be played in church, or this is the way it must be done. When you start making extremes and saying it must be this way, or else God's not pleased with it, and if it ain't in the Bible, where are you getting that from? You're just taking a step back, you're mixing in tradition, and you're saying, well, it makes sense that it should be this way. Well, that's fine. Go over to West Africa and see if it looks the same there. Are they in sin? Are they breaking the law? You know, or are they breaking your law? Same kind of thing. Remember also, we've talked about this already, but the Sabbath came not from Genesis. It came from Exodus. People try to say, well, it's, it's from the uh, first week in the Bible when God rested on the seventh day. Not technically, no. The principle of rest comes from Genesis. The Sabbath, by title, the Sabbath does not. Abraham didn't keep a Sabbath as far as we know. He might have rested on the seventh day as a principle. We don't know. It doesn't say. But it doesn't say he kept a Sabbath by any means. Noah didn't. Isaac didn't. Jacob didn't. The Sabbath came much later. It came with Moses. It was not in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. That's not what it was. But that's not where it started because the commandment is what? You remember the first word? 
of that commandment about the Sabbath? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, which if you're remembering it, that means it came previously, but not. That's when people say, yes, so it came from Genesis. No, it didn't. It came from chapter 16 when God sent the manna and told them to trust him that he would provide enough manna. And the way they could show they trusted him is on one day they were not to gather any and trust that they had enough to get them through. And on that day, they were supposed to rest. That's where it came from. It's also not a worship service. So when we come back and we say as the church, you must come to church on such and such a day because that's your Sabbath, then you're doing the same thing. That's not that's not what the Sabbath was about. What was the Sabbath about? Rest. Rest. Worship is part of it, but it was about rest. It wasn't about coming to a worship service. It was about staying home with your family. Should you come to church? Absolutely. Should you come on Sunday? 100%. Why don't you come on Wednesday as well? Why don't you come on Tuesday and Thursday? I'm not joking. I mean, come on. The doors are open. BX is. You can come anytime you want to come. But yes, there ought to be a corporate time. Sure. But that's not a Sabbath. Okay? Exodus 31. We already studied this. You don't have to turn to it. I'm blasting through it quickly. But Exodus 31, verse 12, also points out clearly that this is not about the church in general. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths for this, because this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, and that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you, which is worship. All right, and he says, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy or set apart for you. It's a gift for you, so keep it. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Funny that the church tries to tell people you must keep a Sabbath and come, but nobody holds that accountable. Can't decide that you want to keep one law and not decide the other half. If you're going to say that it's a law and we must keep the Sabbath, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but we have... Faith, honor, Sabbath-keeping. If you honor Sabbath-keeping, then you have to also honor Sabbath-breaking, which means you are put to death. like to see you pull that one off. You know what I'm saying? But that's what it says. You can't say we're going to honor God by keeping the Sabbath, but we're not going to honor God by killing somebody when they break it. All right? The rules were death. Whoever does not work on it, excuse me, whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Twice in two verses. Therefore, listen, this is my point. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever between him and the Jewish people. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven on the seventh day he rested. So, again, it's a law given to the people of Israel. Unless you are part of the people of Israel, you could argue this is not with you, for one. Number two, people try to twist that by saying, well, the church is modern-day Israel. That's not true either. You cannot prove that anywhere in Scripture. It's not in there. Israel was a nation, a, a nation of God and a physical nation on the earth. We are a people, the church is. We are of all nations, tribes and tongues and languages. We are not a nation. We are not the people of Israel. Never have been. Church is not. So this was a picture of something between God and Israel, a covenant agreement between God and Israel. And if anything else, it was fulfilled in Christ. And Christ built the church. 
So however you want to look at it, it's fulfilled in Christ. I would argue that if you want to say you should keep the Sabbath, then that's fine. But you need to keep all 612 of the rest of them. It's a law. Okay? That's not what it was about. It was completed in Christ. Now, I will say this. The principle of coming together to worship 100% is there. It's not the Sabbath. It's a day of worship. Okay? The principle of rest, which is the Sabbath, is still in effect 100%. Sure. Why? Because that came before Exodus 16. God rested on the seventh day. God took a day and he rested. Your human body is not designed. I'm so preaching to the choir right now. But your human body is not designed to go without rest. That's, that's the point. He made it that way. He modeled it. He rested. So that's the principle of it. If you want more detail on it, we can talk more about it. Or else you can go listen to that weeks ago. We talked about it then. Let's keep going. Verse 3, Matthew 12. Again, we already talked about this, but I'm going to go over it quick just again. This is Jesus' response to them. He said, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? He entered in the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence in the temple, which it was not lawful for him to eat. Or excuse me, tabernacle, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. He says, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Guiltless, by the way. And I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Basically, he's saying if if the temple was allowed to excuse work on the Sabbath for these priests, because the priests worked on the Sabbath, they handled sacrifices and everything else. So he's saying if the temple law allowed for the priests to be able to break the Sabbath in their minds, he or his kingdom here was greater than the temple. And therefore was certainly allowed to do it as well. Verse 7. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the what? Guiltless. So that's a key word to remember. He is saying they are guiltless. If you ever wondered, did he twist it? Did he break it? No, because he's telling you right there they are guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Basically what he's saying here is he's the author of the Sabbath. He writes the rules of the Sabbath, not them. The Pharisees had added all these rules to the Sabbath. They don't get to write the rules of the Sabbath. It's his. He wrote the rules of the Sabbath. So eating is a work of necessity. You got to eat. Healing, in this case, even we'll see in a minute, is a work of mercy. Both of them were allowed. They were not forbidden on the Sabbath. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you cannot eat. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you cannot show mercy. It's part of his his point here. And again, he didn't break the law. How do you know above anything else that Jesus didn't break the law here? For one, he is the law. What does that mean? You're right. But what does that mean exactly? Huh? What would it mean if he is the law and he broke the law? He contradict himself. Jesus can't be the perfect sacrifice and have broken the law. Can't have that both ways. I realize he's above the law because he created, I got that. But you, you can't say he came and he broke the Sabbath and he broke this law and he changed that law and was the perfect sacrifice. It, not, not possible. He was the perfect sacrifice because he did not, he alone did not break the law. This is not about him breaking the law. Again, this is about the Mishnah laws that all got added by the Pharisees. And we got to be careful because we have our own Christian Mishnahs. You know, I already talked about that. But, 
what he is doing is he's pointing out here that they'd added all these chains to something that was a gift from God. When he mentions David and the priest there, basically, there's no law against the priest giving David that food. Nowhere in the Bible does it say they can't do that. It does say it's for them, but it doesn't say they can't give it away. And Jesus is mocking them when he says it's not lawful for them to eat. It doesn't says it's against the law for them to eat it. He's mocking them. You made it not lawful. He mocks them again when he says that uh, these priests profane the Sabbath by working on it, according to them. But the funny part there is he's saying the priests, according to you Pharisees, are profaning the Sabbath because they're working. But you Pharisees are also saying that it's okay that they do it. You know what I mean? He's like, you're writing your own rules. What Jesus is getting at, you don't have to turn to it, but Mark 2, 27, you already know it. The Sabbath was made for man and what? Not man for the Sabbath. What he's getting at is God gave a gift to you for rest. And you guys have turned around and put chains all over it and thrown it on the backs of the people and said, you got to do this or else you'll burn in hell if you don't. You know, that's that's what he's getting at. Verse 9. He went on from there. So now we'll pick up. This is where we had stopped in the previous time. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. So he's right there in the same place, more or less. And a man was there with a withered hand. Uh, some of the ways that this is worded in other gospels almost suggest it was a setup. Just happened to be there. Like it's a setup. And they asked him. So they're in their synagogue and they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. In fact, in Mark's version of this, he says they watched him. And the Greek word there is pretty wild. It's like the idea of spying on him. It, honestly, it's like that imagery of looking out the corner of your eye. I mean, how sinister is that noise? You know what I mean? Like, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they're just watching him. Like, we got this withered hand guy over here, probably a setup. Don't know that, but maybe. And they're eyeballing him out the corner of just waiting. Just wait. Verse 11. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep? I love he just turns it right back on them. Basically, Jesus is a master at saying, you answer your own question. You know what I'm saying? Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? What does he mean by that? What would be the problem with the sheep falling in the hole? Well, it'd be work to get them out, but why would you get the sheep out of the hole? For one, it's livelihood. Why else? Don't you love these Facebook videos of somebody out in the frozen lake getting some deer that's stuck out there off? Why? Are they hoping to eat it when they get it ashore? It's compassion. Yeah, it's both. He's getting it both. It is their livelihood, but he's really arguing. He's having compassion. You got this guy who's come in with a dried up hand and he's saying, if, if one of you, even if one of your sheep, which is just your livelihood, falls in a hole, you're going to get it out. If for no other reason, you got compassion on the sheep. You know what I'm saying? You want the sheep out. How much more value is a man than a sheep? So he doesn't no, no question mark here. So it is lawful to do what? Good on the Sabbath. Now, how frustrating do you think that is? Well, what's good? See, this is what we do, too. This is what we do, too. What's proper dress? Tennis shoes. I got on tennis shoes. If I go down, no, no disrespect, man, because I don't care. But if I go down to the sanctuary, I'm not going to probably wear tennis shoes. I don't care, though. 
So don't, don't think I'm making that a personal thing. It don't matter to me. I don't care what I wear. Uh, I'll wear. I preached down there and had a suit on, and I wore the suit up here. And oddly enough, people up here were more shocked than anything. Why are you wearing a suit? I'm like, why do y'all care? You know, uh, that that's the thing. That's the thing, though. It's the same kind of deal. It, it, he says it's lawful to do good, but he don't define what good is. How do you know? I hope the Holy Spirit leads you, convicts you, you know, certainly on our side of the cross anyway, to whether or not this is something that's good. Now, I, I got to be honest with you, you get into my line of uh, work or whatever, and it gets even more confusing. I forgot to put this back up there. It gets even more confusing because ministering to somebody, is that work for me or is that good on the Sabbath? Sabbath, on my day of rest, let's call it that. Depends on my heart, I guess, yeah. Depends on what my wife says, too. That might have something to do with it, you know. <laughs> One reason why I'm so hard to get a hold of, any of you that have been close to me know it's really hard to get me sometimes, with text, even with texting. And, and that's largely because a lot of times I'll just throw my phone away. I mean, I just put it down because if I don't, there's always a need, you know what I mean? Uh, but anyway, that's beside the point. I love that Jesus just says, it's lawful to do good. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, or put, put your hand out here. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other hand. Jesus' attitude here is wild, by the way. Matthew doesn't catch it as much as Mark does. Look at Mark chapter 3. He is seriously fed up with this. In Mark chapter 3, verse 2. This is where the word watched is. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now, I don't know whether he's saying that angrily or not, but I tend to believe maybe a little bit angrily because the next thing it says. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and he was restored. He, he, Jesus is done playing with this. I mean, he, he is ab- angry. You don't see that a lot in the word, you know. I mean, but there it is. He, he, he is Furious in a sense. I don't think he's exploding angry, but I mean, he's, he's tired. It's to me, he is grieved in his heart. I'm, I'm just, I'm so sick of this. You know, what does it take? Imagine that. What does it take? Boy, this one will preach to me too, but what does it take to get you to believe, you know? Also notice it wasn't the man's faith that made him well, or at least it didn't say so, like it typically does. Why did he heal him? And we don't know for a fact, but we can assume some things. What? Make a point. Make a point. I'd say that's for one. Definitely to make a point. Plus, ironically, he gave the Pharisees what they wanted. They were going to see if he would break the law and heal. Of course, he didn't break the law because there's no law that says you can't do that. But he did exactly what the Pharisees wanted. He healed them. But not without calculating... The decision to do it. 
See what I'm saying? So this man, whether or not this man is a plant or whether or not this is just genuinely a needed, broken-hearted man, he's right in the middle of it. But it's not even technically about him. It's about Jesus and these Pharisees and whether or whether or not the law is being obeyed or broken and whose law is being obeyed and broken. And the awesome part is this man walks out of there with a healed hand. Pretty good deal for him. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't tell us what he thought, but I tend to believe he walked out a believer. Go back to Matthew 12. We keep going. Verse 14 tells you how they responded. But the Pharisees, plural, went out. And, and I think we've talked about it plenty of times. But just in case you don't know, the Pharisees were just the religious rulers. There was a religious government of the Jews that governed the laws. Um, it was known as the Sanhedrin. And that body was made up of a couple of different parties. The predominant ones were Sadducees and Pharisees. Pharisees probably carried the most weight. And they were obviously the ones obsessed with Jesus, to say the least. But it says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So they didn't argue with him. They didn't say, you broke the wall. They didn't do anything. They walked out of there and they immediately organized themselves for the purpose of destroying Jesus. That must have been great. Yeah, that must have been a good, good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Oh, that's a good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Mark, he just asked that. And and ironically, too, Mark says that they, they approached the Herodians, which will tell you how madly they hated Jesus because they hated the Herodians, too. Basically, the Herodians were zealots that were supporting Rome, or supporting Herod as king. The Pharisees couldn't stand the thought of Herod being king. They didn't think he belonged there, and he probably didn't. Well, certainly he didn't. He wasn't even, didn't even have a birthright to the throne. But they partnered up with these guys. How bad do you have to hate somebody that you partner up with your enemy to kill the person? Verse 16, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. So Jesus knew it. Another principle here, Jesus withdrew. Was he afraid? Of course not. Wasn't time. That's, that's something to always remember that, you know, again, remember Jesus told him if you go when he was telling the disciples, if you go into one town and they hear you, you know, stay, if they don't kick the dust off, you know, when do you do you do that all the time? I mean, if you did that in parts of this world, you would be right back out of that country in a couple of minutes. So do you stay and persist and continue? How do you do that? Well, that's that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. There were times when Jesus did what he did. He did miracles. He confronted the Pharisees. He stood his ground right in front of their face. But then he went on. And the reason was because it wasn't time. He was following a plan. He was following God's plan and working something out here. Go on, verse 16, it says, he withdrew, and many people followed him. So all, uh, large crowds are continuing to follow, and he healed them all. I love that. Despite this little show of the Pharisees, everybody's still following Jesus. And despite Jesus' anger and frustration, he's still healing them. And before you say, well, he was only angry at the Pharisees. No, he's angry at the generation. Remember, he's already said it a few times, this generation. All right? And he ordered them not to make him known. Again, same reason why he went on from there. Why does he say don't make them known? Make him known. It's not time yet. There's a plan. There's all kinds of reasons for that. You know, you 
paparazzi is what pops in my brain every time I read that. He can't even go outside his door without being swamped by people that either want him to be king when he's not ready to be king or want him to be killed when it's not time for him to be killed or want him to be promoted or humiliated or whatever else. You know, every every paparazzi out there has an agenda. None of them just want the news. That's what makes them paparazzi and not the news. Although that's arguable. Don't please don't. Okay. Verse 17. This this was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 is where it comes from. I love that again. That's Matthew's whole thing. He said that, I don't know how many times now, this was to fulfill what was written. So one of the cool things about that is that's telling you that this passage in Isaiah 42, he's saying, is fulfilled that then in Christ. Not still to come, not one day down the road, like that was fulfilled in Christ. So that's pretty awesome because it gives you a chance to look back 800 years to Isaiah, 800 years prior to Jesus, to Isaiah and see scripture that is being fulfilled. And I love that Matthew always points that out. Jesus' purpose in identifying who he was and doing miracles was fulfilling scripture. That's what he did it for. The scripture identified him. Verse 18 this is Matthew's retelling of the of Isaiah. He says, Behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved and my soul, with whom my soul is well pleased. It's God speaking. I love that he says, my servant. If you go back and you look in Isaiah the 40s, and it's particularly around 50, 51, 52, 53 is the more, more famous one. But there's this reference to my servant. And the question is, is the servant the church? Is the servant Israel? Is the servant... Isaiah, or is the servant Jesus, or the Messiah to come? Yeah. And in the context, sometimes it's a little hard to figure that out. Because sometimes it's definitely a reference to Israel. Sometimes it appears to be a reference to Isaiah. It's not the church. I can weed that one right out for you because there was no church. Okay? And then in some cases, it's clear that it's about Jesus. Like Isaiah 53, without a doubt, is about Jesus. Ultimately, it all is because Isaiah would either picture Jesus or Israel would picture Jesus and fail to do what Israel was to do and Jesus would accomplish it. For instance, one of the things Israel as his servant was supposed to do was be a light to the Gentiles. They weren't. Uh, they were ugly to the Gentiles, largely oppressive to the Gentiles, and pretty much at the time of Jesus coming couldn't stand the Gentiles. But they were supposed to be. So Jesus is a Jew, and he is part of the nation of Israel, and he would fulfill as Messiah these things. In fact, as his servant, he would also go to the cross, what Isaiah 53 talks about. But here in in, uh, verse 18, I love the mys. My servant, my beloved, my soul, I will put my spirit upon him. When did that happen? Baptism, right? And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So, Think about this. I know it says Gentiles, but think about think about it in terms of if you were to hear this in that time period, Rome. He will proclaim justice to Rome. How, how do you think they felt about hearing that? You know what I mean? He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until, until... So he's going to deal with something, but he won't do it until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, 
the Gentiles will hope. Again, what if that were Rome? In, in Isaiah, it actually says the coastlands, and it's talking about distant peoples. But imagine if they thought it would still have been Gentiles, obviously. But imagine if they heard him say that about Rome. In his name, Rome will hope. Furthermore, who's the servant now? God's the one speaking. So God, you can't say in my, it doesn't say in my name, they will hope. Doesn't, can't surely mean in Israel's name, they will hope. Know what I mean? So the servant must have a name. And it must be an identity, a person that people can hope in. And that, remember, Jesus is the fulfillment of that, yes. But Isaiah wrote that 800 years prior to this, roughly. Uh, one commentary says, or actually this is MacArthur, he said, Isaiah is quoted to demonstrate that contrary to the typical first century rabbinical expectations, the Messiah would not arrive with political agendas, military campaigns, and great fanfare, but with gentleness and meekness, declaring righteousness even to the Gentiles. The Messiah would not try to stir up a revolution or force his way into power. The reed was used by shepherds to fashion a small musical instrument. Once cracked or worn, it was useless. A smoldering wick was also used for giving light. I'm sorry, was also useless for giving light. These represent people who are deemed useless by the world. Christ's work was to restore and rekindle such people, not to break them or quench them. This speaks of his tender compassion towards the lowliest of the lost. He came not to gather the strong for a revolution, but to show mercy to the weak. Another commentary says this, He would not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. He would not trample on the dispossessed or underprivileged in order to reach his goals. So, in this case, they see the, the reed as the plant itself and bruise, like it's starting to fall over. It's bruising and starting to fall down. I, I lean more in that camp than a musical instrument, but it doesn't make any difference because the point he's getting at is still the same. He's not going to trample over people. He would encourage and strengthen the brokenhearted, oppressed person. He would fan even a spark of faith into a flame. His ministry would continue till he would bring justice to victory. His humble, loving care for others would not be extinguished by the hate and ingratitude of men. In Isaiah, the expression is worded, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. But the meaning is the same. The coastlands refer to Gentile nations. They're pictured as waiting for his reign so that they might be his loyal subjects also. That's awesome. The point is, his kingdom was coming with mercy and justice for the oppressed rather than dominant oppression of their enemies, which is what the Pharisees were hoping to see happen. And rather than set up Israel's kingdom and destroy Rome and all the other Gentiles that wouldn't kneel, he was for Rome and the Gentiles, not their rule, but for them as people. And that had to drive these Pharisees bananas. And probably a lot of the people, too. We know the zealots. I keep coming after the Pharisees because they're the ones in this conversation. But it wasn't just them. And until this point, Jesus had not ignored Gentiles. But his primary focus has been the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right? His ministry has always involved Gentiles. But from this point forward, things are about to change. He is going to begin to address Israel more as that generation that rejected him, rejected his kingdom. And he begins to focus his ministry towards training his disciples to go to the ends of the earth. 
to the Gentiles. He's still going to deal with the house of Israel, but his whole language is, all of his language is going to start to change. You'll see that in the coming weeks, but as we talk through it, but all of it's going to start to change. Romans 11, um, flip over there real fast, and we'll come right back and just finish the last little bit of Matthew 12 really quick. But look at Romans 11. Paul covers a lot of this in chapter 9 through 11 of Romans. There's debate with theologians because of whatever viewpoint they take on Israel and end times. I don't have any debate. I'm pretty stolid where I stand on all this. I love the way he words it in chapter 11. In verse 11, I'm not going to obviously study through every bit of this right now, but just to get the point. This is Paul, obviously, years after Jesus, and he's talking back about the Israel's rejection of Jesus, and he says, or the Messiah, he says, so I ask, did they stumble, the Jews, in order that they might fall? In other words, was their rejection intent on seeing them destroyed forever, cut off, accursed by God? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, the rejection of Jesus, the rejection of Messiah, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Notice there's not a period, there's a comma. What? So as to what? Make Israel jealous. Israel's not out of the plan. Okay? He says, now, if their trespass or their sin means riches for the world, and if their failure to recognize Christ means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Which means they're coming back into the picture. Okay? But he says, now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. So now he's aiming his, lo- his, his language in verse 13 straight to Gentiles. You, me, the rest of us. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I want everybody to see my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. He's famous for that. But as you can see in his own words, his hope and desire is that his people would come to faith by his ministry to Gentiles. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from death, a people that had seemed to be dead alive again, as they're included in what we are. Verse 24, skipping down, he says, if you Gentiles were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, basically... There's debate on what that tree is. I believe that tree is the promises of the kingdom of God. They were given to Israel. They were made to Israel. Chapter 9 talks about that in detail. And we were not by nature part of that as Gentiles. We were by nature contrary to that. But we have been taken and grafted into that tree. He says, how much more will these, the natural branches, Israelites, be grafted back into their own olive tree, their own kingdom promises? So that day is coming. But back in... The time of Jesus and the place we are in Matthew chapter 12, we are walking into the time period where that moment happens, where Israel does this sin that Paul is talking about by rejecting the Messiah. Go back to chapter 12 and let's finish this little piece real quick. Uh, Matthew 12. It says, then in verse 22, a demon oppressed man was blind and mute was brought to him. Once again, he. Can't see, can't speak, so somebody has to bring him in there. And it could be argued that the demons weren't racing in there anyway. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. Exorcists believed then, and some do still, whatever you want to, however you want to see that, that you had to taunt the demon. You had to call the demon to submission in some way. But you predominantly did that through taunting it and then asking its name. And calling it out ultimately by its name. 
which would mean that the person would be need to be able to hear and speak. In fact, the Pharisees, Pharisaic Judaism says that if you if if a demon can keep someone from speaking, you cannot cast it out. It can't be done. And this is not the first time Jesus has done this, by the way. We've read it already. He already did it one time. But this time, the people respond a little differently than they did before. Before, they're asking, where does he get this authority? Who is this man? Now they ask a very different question. Verse 23, and the people were amazed and they said, can this be the son of David? What are they saying? Is this the Messiah? What else? Who was the Messiah? Who was the son of David? What was his title? King. Is this the king that we've been waiting on? Is this it? Is this the king? Is this the guy? This this particular crowd, this generation, is now asking the question. The question's on the table outright. Is this the Messiah? Is this the anointed one? Is this the king? Is this the descendant of David that's been foretold and promised? There were miracles that the Messiah was expected to do. One was healing a leper. He'd done that. Not been done before. One was casting a demon out of a mute person. He's done that now technically twice. The problem is here that this is not a rhetorical question that they're asking. And it's not just a random question into the air. They're asking this question of somebody. Who? Who are they asking? It doesn't outright say it, but we know because of the response. They're asking the Pharisees. They can't think for themselves. They wouldn't dare think for themselves. Israel has rarely done that throughout all of history. If the king was wicked, Ahab, you know, Manasseh, so were the people. The last thing they're going to do is rebel against the king and, you know, stay loyal to God. If the king was loyal, like Hezekiah or Josiah for the most part, then they followed that king. And the people were, so as the leader went, so the people went. For the most part, constantly. In fact, we've referenced it several times, but back in Elijah's, one of the best parts, when Elijah's on the mountain with the the people of uh, Baal, prophets of Baal, and he says, you know, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? If Baal is God, follow him. If Jesus, or if the Lord is God, follow him. And what do the people say? That's exactly what they say. Yeah, nothing. Says the people, the people did not answer him a word. They're always looking for a shepherd. They're always looking for a sheep. I mean, shepherd, they're sheep, always looking for a shepherd. They always need somebody to tell them, lead them, guide them. Again, danger for us. This is why the word is so important that you know it. You have a shepherd, he is alive and well, and that's his word. You know, don't take my word for it. Don't take Micah's word for it. I know he don't mind me saying that because he would say it too. Don't take, don't take any pastor's word for it. Get in the word and see if the word affirms it. You know what I mean? But they're looking for it. They have nothing. So they turn to these guys, and now the Pharisees are in trouble because the Pharisees got one of two things. They have to either affirm these miracles, and if they affirm these miracles, then they affirm him. Or they have to condemn them. But if they condemn the miracles, they got to explain how the miracles happen if they condemn him. And the people are looking at him. Is this him? Is this the Messiah? Should we follow him? Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said it's only by Beelzebub or the Lord of the flies, the Lord of dung. Some translations say the prince of demons reference to Satan that this man cast out demons. How crafty is that? Not the first time he said that either. Back in Matthew 9, verse 34, he'd healed a mute person then. Called a demon out of a mute person then. They said the same thing. 
They said it's only by the prince of demons that he does this. And you know what? In today today's rabbinic literature, obviously not messianic, I mean straight Judaism, rabbinic literature still sees him that way. In fact, one commentary I found says, Yeshu, which is a slanderous name for Jesus, Yeshu of Nazareth practiced sorcery and led Israel astray. Another one, uh, part of the Babylonian Talmud, talks about a Jew who imported witchcraft from Egypt and led Israel astray. And is pointing kind of at uh, Joseph and Mary, references Mary as an adulteress. And then, of course, puts Jesus in that same category and claims that ultimately Jesus was, was hung because he led the people of Israel astray through um, the use of witchcraft and caused Israel to betray her God. One other wild note here, we're done, but one other wild note here is nobody argues about the miracles happening. Too many witnesses. Nobody argues the miracles. You, you can't argue they happened. You just got to decide what you're going to do with them, which is exactly what we're dealt with today. Too many witnesses, man, they happened. question is, what are you going to do with it? There is an unpardonable sin. It's denying his identity. That's it. Claiming his authority comes from any source other than God. And therefore denying who he is. They claim it came from Satan. Jesus' response is to say every kingdom divided is against itself. cannot stand. And we'll pick that up and we'll go on with it next week.